Why so many secrets? Why so many lies? Next stop polygamy. What love is this? In 2011, a book was published entitled Secrets and Wives, The Hidden World of Mormon Polygamy. The cover of the book is on the screen, and I cannot pronounce the last name of the author, so I won't try because I don't want to <laughs> insult anybody. But the basic information in this book is pretty right on, which of course demonstrates again that truth is stranger than fiction, especially concerning polygamists. I think you found that out I as we go through some very, of our shows. Very surprised. Things that go on inside the polygamy groups behind all those cold, uh, closed doors is chilling and destructive, and uh, much of it, of course, is illegal. And books like this that get behind the scenes and get behind those closed doors should be taken seriously rather than just discounted as another book uh, about polygamy. And books like this one could also help our civil authorities better understand what's going on. Yeah. Now, we want to share some of what the author wrote, and we do hope that it will cause more people to come forward with their stories to seek justice against their abusers. And maybe someday enough will be said and perhaps something will be done about the mushrooming abusive polygamy in our American West. From the preface of the book, we quote this. There are plenty of Mormon polygamists and even more Mormon fundamentalists, another category that the LDS Church denies. Similarly, most fundamentalists will take offense to the word <clears throat> cult. And I admit it has a negative connotation, but cult just happens to be the best word going for a fringe religious group of fanatical de devotion. And that's the sense I intend. I've always thought it unsporting for big religions to denigrate smaller ones as cults when the big boys, Mormons for example, often started out as cults themselves. So true. <laughs> yeah, it is true. And, and he really hits the nail on the head with some of, of what he writes in the book. Now, the author compared the, the world of Mormon polygamy to a range of volcanoes that yeah. are seldom paid any attention to except for when they erupt. And he's right. Every few years or so, a polygamy group explodes with some scandal of abuse or child rape or cheating the government out of millions of dollars or a prophet who does something stupid or illegal. And it dominates the news media for a while. And then the media grasps the opportunity to talk about past abuses of the group and um, atrocities by the polygamists. And then it all dies down into silent oblivion until the next eruption. And <laughs> I thought that was a good analogy. Oh, gee, I really? thought it was, too. Yeah. This is the way he put it in his book. <clears throat> they invite former plural wives to say, they're all nuts, you know, and perhaps some current wives to protest, no, we're not. And then the cycle moves on, but all the while, beneath the surface, the magma continues to bubble and seethe and it won't be long before it blows again. And it won't, right. you know, and this happens all the time. The last one that's happened is is the Kingston boys who were uh, cheating the government out of, yes. what, $57 million, and then they sent $170 million to Turkey yeah. or something, and right. they're still in jail waiting for trial. But it, it's, and something else will happen again. Right, the food again. stamps or whatever it is. Yeah, the food stamp yeah. thing before that with the FLDS. Now, the author gives good details on how Mormon polygamy began and how it has survived even until this day. He reminds us 
that Ervil LeBaron, the murdering polygamist from the past LeBaron polygamy group, was nicknamed the Mormon Manson. <laughs> he re retells the story of the Lafferty brothers, Ron and Dan, who were convinced that God wanted them to kill their brother's wife, Brenda, and her 15-month-old baby, and in July 1984, they did. Brenda's crime was trying to talk Ron's wife into rejecting polygamy. Dan claimed at the time that stabbing his baby niece to death was no problem, that God approved of them doing it. He writes about John Bryant's sex ranch in Mesquite, Nevada, and Arvin Shreve, the pedophile gardener from Ogden, and how in 1998, John Daniel Kingston beat his daughter, Marianne, into unconsciousness in a barn in northern Utah for escaping from a marriage to her uncle. She was 16 years old and was his 16th wife. All of this in the name of polygamy. In the name of God. In the too. name of God. Yeah. He presents Tom Green, the polygamist who decided to parade his five wives and 32 children on national television and then got mad because he was arrested. And all these stories and more are mere eruptions of a violent and deadly volcano, a volcano that too many people are ignoring. No history of Mormon polygamy is complete without, of course, mentioning Warren Jeffs. This is how the author described Warren Jeffs from page 7, a very apt description. You know, I knew he was in control or tried to maintain control, but this is really crazy. Mm -hmm. A polygamist who went clear off the reservation, Jeffs went mad the way Hemingway said people go bankrupt, gradually and then suddenly. I suspect what tipped Jeffs over the edge was power. He banned books television, radio, newspapers, the internet, non-religious music, cartoons, the color red, sports, and any kind of pattern, I guess in clothes, mm -hmm. especially stripes. He even banned laughter because it caused the Holy Spirit to leak out. And that is crazy. That All of that is, is just to control. And polygamy, of course, has always been associated and is associated with tyranny and abuse. The author of the book says that polygamists are shamed by Warren Jeffs, probably in about the same way that the Mormon church is shamed by the polygamists. Mm. And in some respects, this is probably true, but we tend to disagree at least at one point, and that is the Mormon church may claim to be ashamed of modern-day polygamists, but they revere their polygamist heritage. Yep, Many do. Mormon men are actually jealous that they're not able to live polygamy at this time, but they're sure looking forward to living it in the millennium. The author of the book uh, visited and spoke at length with several different people who were, were or had associated with different polygamy groups, and he began with a visit to Short Creek, which is the FLDS community that straddles the southern border of Utah and the northern Arizona. border of Arizona. He made arrangements to have a conversation with a particular person, but instead he was met and in intimidated by a local policeman who made him feel that he should be getting out of Dodge and real soon, which he did. He left town, drove north to Salt Lake City where he was better accepted, and his questions were not only welcome, but often answered in detail. His first visit was with a former polygamist wife, Vicki Prunty. She was part of the Tapestry Against Polygamy organization that focused on revealing the abuses and other illegal behaviors inside Mormon polygamy groups. We quote from page 14. For Vicki, Polygamy isn't just about men having more than one wife. It's a whole culture of oppression, child abuse, racism, sexism, religious extremism. All these pernicious isms 
buzzing around like flies. In a letter to Nevada Senator Harry Reid, she wrote that the reality of polygamy is that organized polygamous cults are merchandising plural wives. And they are. Yeah. That's what they're doing. That's what they've done. He wrote um, in his book that Vicki believed that the reason polygamy is not prosecuted in, is because half of the Utah legislature is Mormon. Well, I think more than half of them Probably. are Mormon. Yeah. But whatever, when, when both church and politics are mostly LDS, she likened it to Hitler and Stalin and other abusive, oppressive regimes that control the media and the expression of public opinion. And that's what's happening here in Utah. The LDS Church controls the media. It owns the Deseret News and, and uh, at mm -hmm. least one television station right. and other news outlets. He said that even the government and some officials, and this scares me, are now working with and on behalf of polygamists. Really? That's polygamy is <laughs> illegal. Why is that going on? Yeah. Vicki shared some of the abuse she suffered while she was still in one of her polygamous marriages. Yeah. Shocking. Fundamentalists believe in blood atonement. <clears throat> so the only way a woman can be forgiven is if her blood is shed. Her husband used to say, you're mine to dispose of, and like a dog, you'll be coming back to your master. He said that if I fully repented, <clears throat> then he would decide in the next life whether to forgive me or not. It was emotional abuse. That's the same idea the Mormons it's have, that the men getting, taking the, calling the wife from the grave. It's the same idea, yeah. the same controlling. And he would be the one to forgive her. And he would be the one. This is not an unusual attitude in the Mormon church or in Mormon polygamy groups to their less than equal wife or wives. <clears throat> the author goes on to describe Joseph Smith and how he started the Mormon church with his claims of divine inspiration for the Book of Mormon. Now, this man... He, he isn't a religious man, and he's not a Mormon, has no Mormon background, but he sure nails it on some of it. He really it's got a good, good grasp on this. Yeah. And this is what he said on page 41. <clears throat> Excuse me. In terms of straight forgery, an estimated 25,000 words of the Book of Mormon are lifted from the Old Testament and 2,000 words from the New Testament. The lift comes straight from the King James Version of 1611, the one with which Joseph was most familiar, and they reproduce the grammatical and stylistic errors of the translation that Bible scholars have since corrected which would suggest that it's not an ancient record at all, but an attempt by a 19th century American to mimic one. That's exactly, exactly. what it is. Yeah. The author takes the, root of the reader through early Mormon history and their prophets and leaders and presents the deceit and their lies and their refusal to give up polygamy until they were forced to. But he lands on Heber J. Grant who himself had been a polygamist, and when he became president of the LDS Church organization, he finally called an end to their duplicity, we quote. <laughs> so when Heber J. Grant became president, he called an end to the duplicity. At the General Conference in 1931, he announced that the church would not only excommunicate polygamists, it would assist the state in prosecuting them. This from a man guilty of post-manifesto cohabitation himself in 1899. Nevertheless, even Grant maintained his deniability. We never believed polygamy was wrong and never will, he said in a 1937 interview, but one of the cardinal laws of the church is to obey the law. The polygamists were driven underground once more, this time hounded by both the state and their own church. 
but they were a determined lot and accustomed to persecution. They swore their children to secrecy, kept their families close, and gathered in secret. And in this way, polygamy has prospered ever since. And that's right on. That's just exactly <laughs> what right. has happened. Um, the author also made a very interesting point when he said that he learned that the Mormons can't be trusted with their own history. The LDS has a, has a wealth. We've all learned that now, haven't we? <laughs> we were all See. learning that, yeah. The LDS has a well-funded, well-staffed history department, and they boast an immense uh, genealogical library. But he said that the pa the past that the LDS Church presents now is prepared propaganda. Yeah. And it is. If a Mormon historian questions too deeply or, heaven forbid, dares to disagree or speak the truth about their true history, they're excommunicated. <laughs> and the Mormon church is not all that honest about their polygamist history um, mm -hmm. or about Joseph Smith's actual practice of polygamy either. They've whitewashed it to be something entirely different than it actually was. Now, in his quest to get interviews, he discovered Centennial Park. <laughs> which is a polygamy group that's located just south of Colorado City where the sheriff had run him out of town, or the policeman, I don't know if he's a sheriff, but anyway, uh, Centennial Park is a break-off of, um, of the FLDS down in Colorado City. And so he went down to Centennial Park to talk with them um, because they were more friendly and open than the FLDS were. He was welcomed quite warmly, actually, by everyone in the community, and he was treated to great meals, complete with wine, and was graciously invited to spend his nights in various homes, something, of course, the FLDS would never do. He was invited to attend one of their worship services, which I think is very interesting, uh, that they would even invite him to do that, because they're pretty yeah, closed, usually. I imagine. And he describes the service in very interesting terms, we quote. The service begins with the brethren sitting in a row on stage, seven grave men in dark suits facing down their flock. They wait for silence, and then a man in the center stands and clears his throat. He doesn't smile or offer a reading or a homily. He merely mutters some community announcements. Then he calls on someone to bear their testimony after which he calls upon someone else and then another. And so it, on it goes until your brain slips into a semi-coma and your will to live has drained into a puddle on the floor. I just couldn't help laugh at that. <laughs> that's funny it's, the way he put it, but that's know, about as exciting yeah. as a Mormon polygamist <laughs> church service gets. Yeah. It was the most boring thing a in town. A puddle on the floor. <laughs> Yeah. There's much, and that's why people don't like to go to church because, yeah. you know, in these Mormon um, communities. There's much to, uh, more to say about his visit um, in, with the Centennial Park group, which we don't have time to cover everything, but we do want to share this quote from one of his hosts. And this has to be true of every polygamous group. Oh, yes, absolutely. Everyone wants to be a leader. Leaders always seem to get more wives, and the more wives you have on earth, the more exalted you are. They all try to say that that's not the case, but it is. The nature of the devil is greed. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I think it's a very interesting quote, and it is right on. Again, it's, he's right on. Uh, beginning with Joseph Smith, all the leaders are greedy for more and more wives, but they ignore the fact that God reprimanded Solomon for doing exactly that. Now, we're going to move on to chapter 9 now, where the author writes about what he discovered about the Kingston polygamy group, and the chapter is entitled, The Order.
Now, the the Kingston Capital O, Capital o the, <laughs> right. the Kingston Group is called the Order by its members. And he describes the Order as a micro-society which is dominated by the Kingston family and is dedicated to consecration of everything, meaning personal property and money, and all worldly possessions are given over to the church itself, which is a requirement in order to be a member of the group. And that's called the United Order, mm -hmm. and that's why it's called the Order. Yeah. It's just a shortened name anyway. Right. So that's the way he talks about the Kingston group through the book. Now, the author talks with several people within the Kingston group, and some of the ladies that he talks with are faithful members, polygamist wives, actually, but they happen to be on the propaganda committee. Oh. <laughs> and they were allowed to speak about the Kingston group to outsiders, but only if they speak positively and don't reveal any of their deep, dark secrets or doctrines. <laughs> they evaded answering direct questions and prevaricated on many of their answers, and they gave answers that are supposed to put their church into a positive light. Of course, that's what propaganda is. Sure. In fact, he got rather frustrated because the conversation didn't seem to get down to what he wanted to discuss. He said it like this. <laughs> they may not be lying as such, but they spin, obstruct, and evade, never offering more information than required, and constantly returning to buzzwords like free agency and the golden rule. They're spinning the co-op into a commercial or utopia of free will and diversity. And that's exactly what they did. It, it just quite, it kind of made me sick as I read through some of the things that they said about the Kingston Group, which just was not true about the group. Yeah. But that's what they wanted. And of course, you'll have to read the book to get all the information. We don't have time to cover everything here. But anyway, in this conversation with two of the propaganda committee ladies, he learns that the first rule of order, of the order, is that you must never talk about the order. At least not honestly, we quote. <laughs> we quote. What makes the order remarkable among polygamous cults is the degree of control it appears to exercise over its members, economic, spiritual, psychological, marital. Its members aren't confined to an isolated compound out in the desert. They are the polygamous next door, the wives all in separate homes, giving the appearance of single mothers dressed in no distinctive garb, their surnames changed to mask their identity. This is the order's power, its ability to infiltrate as a shadow population, despised and dispersed and yet possessed of an unshakable loyalty to their prophet. More than any other group, the order forces the question, to what extent can an open society tolerate a secret society in its midst? That is a good question. It is a good question. That's a question I sure would like to have some civil authorities answer. <laughs> and it is a very true. What he wrote there about the Kingstons yeah. is so very true. Members of the Kingston group are scattered all over the Salt Lake Valley, up into Davis County and further north, up into Box Elder County and all in between. They live in southern Utah. They have ranches and farms and businesses and properties all over the Intermountain West, from Idaho and Arizona and Nevada, all through. Wow. A Kingston family could be easily be your next-door neighbor, and you might never know that. He asks the question, how can a secret and communist-oriented society continue to be allowed to grow and prosper in a free society? <laughs> 
which I don't know how it can. Yeah. It does happen, but sure. I don't know why it's allowed to when it's illegal. But it reminds us of something that God warned us about in the Bible. Yeah, from Ecclesiastes 8 to verse 11. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. And that precisely describes them. It does. There's, it? Th there's no sentence for their crimes carried mm -hmm. out. They're just slapped on the hand or ignored. And so they're, they're, they're filled with schemes to do wrong, and they keep on doing it. It's a volcano, you know, <laughs> that, that volcano magma that, that continues to erupt because they don't do anything about it. They get by with breaking the laws. There's no accountability for their crimes, so they continue to scheme, and very successfully, they uh, continue to do more crimes, thinking up more crimes, and this cycle hasn't stopped and won't stop until the rule of law prevails and they are held accountable. Obviously, God knows what he's talking about. The author explains the origins of the Kingster group, which really does the reader a great favor because he got down and really put the foundation for all of this together. Charles W. Kingston uh, was the first mover and shaker for the group. He claimed he had visions, that he saw Jesus and God. Of course, that's impossible. <laughs> and he had all kinds of spiritual experiences. But God tells us to test the spirits because not all spirits or spiritual experiences are from God. And heeding the warnings in the Bible is the only way to stay spiritually safe. Charles's son, Eldon Kingston, was the first prophet, seer, and revelator of the Kingston polygamy group. <clears throat> Charles Eldon was even claiming to receive wisdom through his own dreams. But Eldon was different from his father. He wasn't content to write journals and articles. He wanted power. And it was Eldon who founded the order in 1935 at the age of 25 during the agony of the Depression and set about consolidating his position at the top. First, he declared a law of consecration. Members were to give their land and possessions to him. He also devised distinct ranking of God's favored people, with himself ranked as number one. Mm -hmm. In 1940, he called a meeting where he unveiled the law of satisfaction, or one above another. Every individual, Eldon explained, is responsible to the one above him in exactly the same way as if that individual was the Savior himself. You are bound to me just the same as if I was the highest God in the heavens. Now, that's scary, isn't that it? That is very scary. And that's exactly what we were taught. I, I was taught that growing up. This is your group, This right? is my group. This group. is, well, I don't own it as mine, no. but I was raised <laughs> it. You were raised in it. <laughs> now, there is not a human being on this planet that we owe that kind of spiritual allegiance and subservience to. We are not bound to men in that way, as he said. There is no other mediator between you and God except Jesus Christ alone. There's no priest, no prophet, no bishop, no polygamy group leader or prophet, no one else. If anyone or any church that claims that position or places you in that position, they are an imposter. And from Hebrews chapter 7, 25 and 26, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, of course Jesus, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, 
exalted above the heavens. And you can't say that about any of these men. No one else. It's just Jesus. Jesus alone is able to save completely those who come to God. We don't need Eldon Kingston or Paul Kingston or Warren Jeffs or Russell Nelson or any other man to mediate God or God's will to us. Yeah, John 14, 6 says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's exactly right. Not through the church, not through the Mormon church. Anyone else who claims that you need them is a false prophet. The Kingston idea, which we mentioned a little earlier, was one above another. Yeah, that's interesting. Concept. Yeah, they, they have someone above you, and you're supposed to obey that person when they tell you to do something, no matter what. And we quote again from the book. Yeah, that's what he says here on page 156. Order members have assured me that one above another isn't as autocratic as it sounds. Evidently, the one above is supposed to be Christ-like, but former members tell a different story. If you think, if you even think a bad thought about the one above, you're at risk of eternal damnation. And if they tell you to do a thing that's wrong or illegal, you just do it. They're the ones that will pay for it, but you'll be rewarded in heaven. And that's exactly how we were taught. One above. One above the other, yeah. So everybody has an authority above them. But you know what? They don't give in to any authority. No, of course not. <laughs> we were to obey even if it's wrong. And if what we did was wrong, then we would not be punished for it. We would be rewarded because we were being obedient. Even if it was illegal. Even if it was illegal, yeah. Well, there's a lot more to talk about, and um, we're, we've got part two because oh, there's so much more. So we're going to finish the Kingston group in part two and then go to a couple of other groups. And so uh, we just hope that you will find this interesting enough to watch part two. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> and thanks, Earl, for, for sharing in this with it's me. It's fascinating. It does get fascinating, doesn't it? It gets kind of kind of sad and when I go through these and I see what they teach is so far removed from the truth. It's just, it breaks my heart that so many Do you many think this people, was a wide distribution, this book? I don't, I don't know, know how wide it went. I, yeah. I, was, I was surprised how accurate he was being yeah. a total outsider so from even very the... Very objective in his yeah, yeah. study of it. Yeah, yeah. and he did, really did some due diligence to dig out Good. the information. You know, all the Mormons and polygamists believe in a spiritual ritual where they seal people to people. But when the Bible talks about sealing, it is never sealing people to people, wives to husbands or children to parents. It refers to sealing up, well, information to protect it. Or God, the Holy Spirit, seals believers to himself, which guarantees our safe entrance from this life into his heaven. People are not sealed to people at all. That practice isn't just superstition. And, of course, it's a blatant unbelief in the power of God to keep us safe until he takes us home. Sealing was never a biblical practice. If Mormonism is a restoration, then they need to discard their sealing rituals and just simply place all their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and in the power of God to do exactly what he said he would do, and that is called saving faith. Thank you for watching. This has been the audio podcast of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. Polygamy, What Love Is This? is produced by A Shield and Refuge Ministry. More information on this program, including the video version of it, can be found at whatloveisthis.tv. 
If you have any questions or need help getting free from Mormon fundamentalism, write us at contact at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 1-800-877-425-9993.